You're listening to the Elvis Ultimate Fan Channel Podcast, the channel that is devoted 100% to the life and career of the biggest selling recording artist of all time, with your host, Steve Francis. Mike Stone is an American martial artist, retired karate fighter, fight choreographer, stuntman, actor, author, and motivational speaker. He is well known for his karate tournament successes in the 1960s. He's authored several books, most notably Mike Stone's book on American eclectic karate. Mike was also a former boyfriend of Priscilla Presley. I'm delighted to say I have Mike on the line to speak with me today. Hi, Mike, and thanks for joining me on the show today. Uh, welcome, Steve. It's nice to be here. And uh, I understand that you're in the beautiful Philippines, so it's probably another great day in paradise, is it? Yes, it is. It's beautiful every day. I expected to hear the uh, the ocean lapping against the, the shore while I'm speaking to you. Yeah, well, we're only about 30 meters from it. Right, right, right. Okay. It must be a very calm day, is it? Oh, it's beautiful, yes. And what have you done with yourself today? Do you mind me asking? Uh, not at all. I, uh, I, about three weeks ago, I guess, I started um, writing my autobiography seriously. I've been writing for maybe 25, 30 years or so, just little stories and experiences and situations I've been in. So, But about uh, three weeks ago, I started really to write seriously. By seriously, I mean uh, spending uh, sometimes five to seven hours a day writing. So That must be very grueling. I mean, you know, it, it sounds sort of, oh, five or six hours, but I'm sure when you're actually sat at the, 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 the computer and tapping away for six or seven hours, it can be very, very grueling. Yeah, it, it, it can be, but the, the thing I like about it is um, having to reflect on your past uh, the time really flies by when you start thinking about it and then actually putting it into words. So it's uh, because you, you bring up a lot of emotions that you had when you recall uh, different situations that happened in your life. So Yeah, it must be very cathartic. Oh, it is very much. Great therapy. So can we actually start then? You, you were born in, in Hawaii. Uh, yes. And uh, just tell us a little bit about that and how you sort of got started into the martial arts. Well, I, I was born in, a, in an area on the west side of Oahu, which is the, the main island, main meaning population and government. And uh, it, in the rural area, it's a place called uh, Waianae, which is uh, on the west coast. And it's a very poor area. Uh, many of the people that live there are... Uh, pure Hawaiians that live on some homestead property. And my grandparents uh, lived there, and I actually lived with them for the first five years of my life uh, because that was just about the middle of the war. I was born in 1943. And uh, so at that time, I really, not, really didn't even get a chance to, to know my parents actually until uh, when I was about five or so, then uh, that was now 1948. And then my father had uh, secured a job on the island of Maui as um, a switchboard operator. He was um, and um, worked on the electrical uh, systems and worked for Maui Electric Company. So that's when we actually moved to the island of Maui. Mm -hmm. uh, but before that, I lived in Oahu. And then in Maui, I we were fortunate that we had... Um, 
uh, home that he had purchased uh, about 35, 40 feet, literally across the road from this, the elementary school that I had gone to from kindergarten to the eighth grade. So that ended up being my sanctuary and playground, which really helped me a lot with uh, my athletic abilities because I was outdoors all the time playing, running, jumping. Uh, and we had the uh, track and field uh, area right across the street. So I, I did a lot of that and played baseball and volleyball and things like that. So um, when I was, I guess, mm, in the eighth grade, I participated in a basketball tournament and had won my very first trophy as an athlete, as a basketball all-star. Uh-huh. And, and as a result of a lot of my athletic skills, even in elementary school, I had gone to a very unique high school. It's called Lahaina Luna. It's uh, on Maui, but it's on the western side of the island again, Lahaina, which is a very popular tourist attraction. And I boarded there for four years from freshman through senior. And um, I played a lot of sports in high school. I captained the football and basketball teams my senior year and ran the 400 meter, uh, I guess they call it a dash. It's, it's the longest sprint that they run uh, in track and field. And then I uh, actually it was my junior summer that a photographer uh, a, com- a commercial photographer from downtown uh, was the photographer for our school and took pictures of a lot of our athletic and sporting events. And he had compiled uh, quite a nice file on me as a, as a football and basketball player. And we became friends. And my junior summer, I could stay back at the high school and work for the three summer months prior to my senior year. And, uh, he was an Aikido uh, student, had just started taking Aikido classes in uh, downtown Lahaina. And he asked me if I had wanted to join him. So I did start with him for the summer. And the unique thing about how life comes around, it's just, I believe so much in the idea called synchronicity and that everything is happening as it should happen, but not in a preordained sense. Mm -hmm. So, um, I joined him for the Aikido class that night and the night we started was actually the first two weeks that Koichi Toihei, which is the number one black belt of the founder of Aikido, uh, Professor Ueshiba, was actually on a world tour and stopped in Hawaii on Maui for those two weeks to teach a class because he was the one touring the world as pretty much an ambassador for the art of Aikido really a gift because he was so accomplished as a martial artist, but more so he was more accomplished as a person. He had tremendous character and uh, he was a short chubby guy, actually not, not very physically fit if you look at him, but he was remarkable, the physical things that he could do. Then after I graduated, uh, I had some, partial scholarships to play football at a couple small uh, colleges in America. And my father would not support any of it and thought that I would be best served if I joined the army right after. So I graduated about, oh, I guess the 12th of June in 1962. And the uh, 4th of July, I was inducted 
into the United States Army along with 310 other fellow Hawaiians. And we took a ship up to Fort Ord, California, where we had our eight weeks of basic training. You were uh, stationed in Fort Chaffee, is that correct? Yes, Fort Chaffee. Yeah. Uh, yeah, at, after, obviously, uh, after my... Obviously, Elvis, uh, uh, Elvis fans will be uh, familiar with that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I heard about that also, that he had spent some time there. Yeah. I, was that where he had his first haircut? I think it was, yes. Yes. Uh, filmed by a couple of cameras. <laughs> uh, yes, I'm sure, yeah. Okay, sorry, yeah, so uh, continue. Sorry to interrupt you. So, uh, well, anyway, at Fort Chaffee, uh, I was now going to be there for the remainder of my enlistment. I was enlisted for three years, so I had about two and a half years left. And one day while we were playing volleyball, the guy that actually ran the post-gymnasium was a Hawaiian guy, a very good friend of mine. His name was James Keanu. And he was in charge of the post-gymnasium, and I would go to play. He asked me to play with him and most of the officers. So this one lunch hour while we were in the middle of a game, we heard something rattle the windows, and we thought it was maybe an explosion of some type, but it was some very loud banging noises. And when we stopped from playing volleyball, we looked around, and we saw this guy in the corner of the gymnasium, and uh, he had on a karate outfit. But remember, this is 1963, uh, yeah. and nobody really knew about what karate was. So we thought he was um, a Mexican chef because he was dark-skinned, had a nice thin mustache, and about five feet nine. And it was this guy named Herbert Peters that was punching the um, folding bleachers that they had. You know those roll-away bleachers that you yeah. can push back? So he was punching that with his bare knuckles and rattling the windows. And we saw that and was wondering, who in the world is this guy? He's nuts. So after it was over, and we finished the game and everybody left, and Jamma or James Keanu and I were there, then this guy walked over to us. And immediately by his accent, because Hawaiians talk a dialect called Pidgin English, which is not accurate English, and he said, hey, brother, what are you guys doing? I said, hey, how are you doing? You're from Hawaii? And he said, yeah. He said, oh, me too, really? Yeah, where are you from? I'm from Maui. Uh -huh. Oh, me too, really? And apparently I had gone to school with his younger brother, who was my hero in high school. He went to the same boarding school I went to, and he played the position of end, a receiver, which is the position I played as a result of watching his younger brother play which I didn't know was his brother, obviously, until that moment. And he said, well, I just came from Okinawa, and I want to start a karate club here on post. You guys interested in joining? So I said, yeah, that sounds like fun. I'd like to join. And what happened was um, our very first session that we had, uh, there was only six of us that attended the first class. And he said, listen, I don't know what you guys think or feel about martial arts or karate, but I'm going to tell you this up front. It'll take you five years minimum to get your black belt. Now I was thinking, wait, I only have two and a half years left. So where am I going to get the rest of my five years if I'm going to train with the same guy? So that's what started. But I had created a mindset. I can do anything. And not only can I do anything, I did not really believe in the idea called learning is a process, that I had to go through pain, suffering, 
I didn't have to go through the normal belief system people have about learning or acquiring skill and knowledge in the normal way. So from the very first session, when he was across from me demonstrating and showing me what to do, uh, there's a phrase I use now quite a lot in my programs. It's called to act as if. So I acted as if I already was a black belt my very first day. Now to verify that or to validate that idea, I looked across and he was doing, he was already a fourth degree black belt. So all I need to do was emulate him physically to do the things he could do. And again, I just graduated from high school. So I was in fantastic shape physically. So my belief was I can do this. I can do this now. I don't have to train as hard or as long as anyone else to become proficient. And this is what really allowed me to become um, a champion within six months from the day I started uh, and also to get my black belt in six months from the day I began training. So, um, yeah, yeah, so that's my martial arts training. So you, you became uh, quite successful very quickly. I mean, in, in 1964, you won the Sparring Grand Championship at the first ever international karate championships in Long Beach, California, I believe. Yeah, that's correct. That's where I first met Bruce Lee, yeah. Oh, you met Bruce Lee? Yeah, Bruce Lee was uh, invited by Ed Parker, Elvis's, one of Elvis's instructors. And uh, Ed Parker was the promoter of that particular event. And he's also a fellow Hawaiian. And when we had gone to that uh, event and I had won that particular event, uh, Bruce did an, a demonstration that afternoon, or actually that evening. And after I had won that, Ed Parker, June Rhee, a Korean guy from Washington, D.C., that uh, trained a lot of our senators and politicians, and Bruce and I went to Chinese dinner to celebrate. <laughs> that must have been some dinner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So tell us then ab about uh, your first meeting with Elvis and Priscilla. Uh, first meeting... Uh, they, they had come, again, Ed Parker had sponsored an event called the Mainland versus the U.S., uh, what was it, uh, the Mainland versus Hawaii Team Championships in Hawaii at the uh, convention center. And Elvis and Priscilla were vacationing in Hawaii at that time. And Elvis uh, was invited by uh, Ed Parker, and they came to the event, and they watched it until... Uh, one of the last fights of the evening, and then uh, they get up to leave because obviously they would have caused a tremendous amount of commotion uh, if they had stayed until after the event. But I never met them then. Uh, I bodyguarded a guy named Phil Spector, who was a record producer, and uh, Phil was invited by RCA to go to Elvis's concert at the Hilton Hotel in Las Vegas. And Phil took me with him, with his wife also, Ronnie, Veronica from the Ronettes. And uh, we had gone to watch Elvis's show, and we sat at the table with uh, several of the executives from RCA. And they had wanted, along with Elvis, had wanted Phil to watch Elvis's show with the idea that he might possibly uh, do the next single recording for Elvis to produce his record. And... Uh, after the show, we had gone back to uh, to talk with Elvis, and Priscilla was there, and that's the first time we had met. It was, you know, it only maybe took 
three or four seconds, and and that was it. What was uh, what was your first impression of Elvis? Um, well, first of all, I was always a fan. Yeah, <laughs> you know that sounds strange, but yes, of course, I I knew who he was, and uh, there was a thing when you know television was quite new in the in the mid fifties or so, especially at our home, and. Um, I had seen uh, Elvis later on, and I had seen a guy named Johnny Mathis. Oh, yes. And another guy named uh, Engelbert Humperdinck. And during the course of the time I was going through school and everything, I had seen those three stars sing on our TV set. And every time they did a close-up to each one of these gentlemen, I looked at the screen close-up, looked into their eyes, and I said to myself, Someday I'm going to meet them. Now, not all at the same time, but individually when I saw them, this is the feeling I had that I will meet them someday. And uh, obviously you saw Elvis. You said you saw Elvis in uh, in concert. What, what was the concert like? Well, it was very good. I mean, you know, he was, uh, he's just awesome. I mean, what uh, terrific energy, charisma. He's such a handsome man, mm-hmm. uh, great voice. I mean, there was nothing not to like about him. He was just, it's, and you know, when you're in the presence of someone like that, that is, uh, that is so good at what they do. Um, it's very humbling for sure. Yeah. Um, so the, the next thing is, is uh, Elvis suggested that Priscilla train with you? No, that's also not true. There's there's really quite a few things that I've read over the years that are just absolutely not correct. Well, not this that is they're the, not the, true. This this is great because I really want to hear it from the horse's mouth. No, there there were many things that maybe I can this I can talk about this evening that might set it straight. As you probably am aware, I have never really given interviews at all. Yeah, well, I, I would I would really I would really really welcome you know the opportunity for you to give your side of the story. I really would. Well, the reason I'm willing to say it, and especially to you for being the first to come out, and and at the time in my life, like I say, where I'm doing the autobiography, I'm venting all of my feelings and ideas, and I'm being exceptionally truthful, even about how I've been growing up and everything. I mean, I'm not even pulling punches on me. Believe me, there is nothing glamorous or fantastic about me talking about myself. Okay. So, so when it came to... Um, uh, the idea about Priscilla taking karate, what had really happened was this. She was taken from Ed Parker, and Ed Parker was also taken from Elvis. This is uh, in Beverly Hills at their home there. And Ed Parker wanted her to go and see some karate, local karate events, smaller events, not the big ones like he was throwing. And uh, several of Ed Parker's black belts in Orange County, where I lived, were actually holding different events, very small localized events. So uh, what had happened was um, she no longer wanted to train with Ed Parker because Elvis, I mean, Ed Parker was really only interested in training Elvis. Okay. And she, she sensed that. And the fact that she was a woman, which doesn't make her any less of a martial artist, but Ed Parker was used to, at this particular time in his life, working with some of the very best physical athletes. And I, I think he didn't appreciate having to spend so much time 
uh, starting with somebody that was really just starting off as she was at that time. So she sensed it and wanted to train with someone other than Ed Parker. So the fact that she lived up in Beverly Hills, uh, it was recommended, and again, I don't know who, so I'm not going to say, but possibly to train with Chuck Norris because he had a school in Sherman Oaks, California on Ventura Boulevard. Now, I and Chuck and I were very good friends for many, many years. We vacationed together. We trained together. We did events together. We, we did everything together. And I used to visit his school up there quite a bit. So we had met uh, Priscilla just briefly when she had taken a class with Chuck up at the Sherman Oak School. And then she had asked me because of course, she's very well known. And after the regular, uh, the last session of the evening, when people are changing and going home and everything, she stayed behind a little bit. Well, I think she had a friend named uh, Joanne Esposito. Oh, uh, yes. Joni Esposito. Yes. So, uh, Joni uh, and a girl named Nora, I think from uh, Memphis, but they had accompanied Priscilla to the class. So they waited for her, and then we were talking, and since I was a good friend of Chuck. Obviously, I stayed behind to talk with Chuck. And we had just briefly mentioned, and she had asked me if I have a school. And I said, yes, I do. And she says, oh, where is it? I said, it's in Orange County, California. It's about 50 to 60 miles away from here. It's really quite far. And she goes, oh, it might be interesting for me to come down and watch one of your classes. And I said, no, I don't think so, because it's really quite far. And it would be not fair for me to say, oh, yeah, sure, come down and watch the class, because I knew that the reason she had gone to Chuck was for convenience. Mm -hmm. So for me to even consider that she would drive all the way to Orange County to take classes from me was just like, you know, you know how they talk in Hollywood, right? They say a lot of things, yeah, let's meet for lunch and let's do yeah. this and let that. And I believe that's, I mean, she was being nice and gracious, but I believe that's the kind of chatter that it was. And I'm really a no-nonsense guy. I don't know if you've ever heard about my reputation, but I cannot stand pettiness. I, I just don't like it. Yeah, yeah. I like people that shoot right from the hip. So I just said I kind of discouraged her from even thinking about coming down to my class. And anyway, she said, well, can I just have your number if, if uh, we decide sometime to come down with my friends? Because she admitted then that I have never driven on the freeway before alone. Oh, wow. So she's so she's always had somebody to drive with her. So all the more reason I was thinking like, well, she'll never come there because who wants to come and train? You know, if she's going to train with me, it's going to be two or three days a week. So how would that be possible? So I kind of really discouraged her from that. Uh, but that was another time we had met. And then um, uh, sh shall I talk about the other couple instances? Yes, please. Yes, I'm sure uh, all my listeners would be interested in this. Yes. Well, there was a, there was another time uh, a guy named Bob Perry, who is a black belt from Ed Parker. He was also living in had a school not far from mine in Orange County, California, and they were holding a karate tournament there at a place called Balsa Chica High School. It's in uh, Garden Grove Boulevard. Mm -hmm. So I had gone there that day, and not expecting to see Priscilla there. Uh, so I went in and I just went directly up into the bleachers and sat to watch some of the matches from up there. 
And then Bob Perry and a guy named Bob White, who's a very good friend of mine till today, we're quite close, uh, saw me sitting up in the bleachers and introduced me to the audience and asked for me to come down to the scorer's table or the head table where uh, the people were uh, organizing the event. So I walked down there and I said hello to everybody. And there were a couple matches going on right in front of us. And so at that time, the rings were not really boxing rings. There were gymnasium floors that were just taped with uh, about a two-inch uh, white masking tape. So they taped off a 20-foot square, and that became the actually fighting area that the com uh, competitors fought in. So in front of me, uh, Bob uh, White was saying, oh, look, look at those two girls. And they were really beautiful. One was a blonde and the other was a brunette. Mm -hmm. And he said, that's Priscilla Presley. For some reason, I just took it that the blonde was Priscilla, and it was Joanne uh, Esposito. So they were about, oh, maybe five or six feet in front of us watching the match, which was another four feet in front of them. And as the fighters fought and became aggressive in their direction, they actually fought out of the ring, which is, is very common. And in the process of doing that, the two girls backed up to get out of the way. And when they did, the brunette fell into my arms. Oh. <laughs> I, I caught her, and that was Priscilla. But I, I didn't realize at the time that it was her. So I just set her, stood her back up, and uh, she said, oh, thank you. I said, you're welcome, and then just backed away. But I was looking at Joanne, thinking that that was Priscilla. So anyway, he said, oh, the one you caught, that's Priscilla. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, did you notice how pretty she was? I said, no, not really. I was looking at the, the other girl. <laughs> so he said, but that's Priscilla. I said, oh, okay. And uh, she had actually, I remember she had a denim, uh, a short denim jacket top and a denim skirt with uh, like patchwork, diff different color denim patches. Uh-huh. This is this is very interesting because this is actually a story I've never heard before. Yes, you never heard it because nobody ever said it. Okay. That's great. It's brilliant. Uh, so so anyway, uh uh when that finished, I walked back up into the bleachers where I was sitting before I came down. I didn't realize that she had I find out now. I found this out much later on a vacation that Priscilla and I went to Hawaii, and she said, "Remember the time we met at that little karate tournament in uh, Orange County?" And I threw myself into your arms. I said, "What?" <laughs> she said, I, "She said I knew you were standing behind me, and I just exaggerated trying to get out of the way of the two fighters. I knew you'd catch me." I said, "Are you serious?" She said, "Yeah." So now when I think again in hindsight, after she had said this, I remember going back up into the bleachers to sit where I was sitting originally. And when I s sat up there and occasionally I would glance at the two girls again and she would always be looking at me exactly where I was seated. And for her to know where I was seated, she must have had to follow me visually to see where I had gone to sit in the bleachers. Mike, this, this this is this is very fascinating because this is something I, I'm learning something new here. I, I hadn't realized this is how it kind of all started, so to so so to speak. Well, let me tell you the one that really started it. Okay. 
Uh, it was Ed Parker's, I think it was 1960, maybe 67 or 68 International Karate Championships. I think Joe Lewis was fighting um, uh, Chuck Norris or somebody like that. Then it was a, a, a big platform about elevated about a meter off the ground, a 40-foot square. And there was, uh, on one side of it were uh, referees, announcers, and people like that that were involved in the production of the event. I was sitting along with a bunch of people. There was a row of us. Uh, next to me was a guy named Alan Steen. Uh, next to him was Joe Lewis. Next to him was Chuck Norris. Next to him was Priscilla. Next to her was Nora. Next to Nora was um, uh, Jerry Schilling. And uh, next to Jerry Schilling was, mm, who's that left-handed guitar player? Yeah, his name is Dick Dale. Oh, right. Okay, Dick Dale. Yeah, Dick, Dick Dale and the Deltones was his original group. But anyway, we're all seated on that one side. And again, we were uh, there was a break in the match, and we were just all turning to each other uh, laterally and talking. And then... Um, Alan Steen from Dallas, Texas, another martial arts champion, leaned forward, looked over at me and said, Mike, have you ever met Priscilla Presley? And I said, uh, yeah, I think so. So he turns to Priscilla and said, Priscilla, I want you to meet Mike Stone. So she leans forward also to look in my direction, and I had to lean forward because everybody's sitting right in line. Mm -hmm. I leaned forward, and she did, and we looked at each other, and I said, hi, Priscilla. She says, hi, Mike Stone. And she called me Mike Stone. It's strange because... In my life, even in grammar school and high school, very few girls ever called me Mike. They always called me Mike Stone. Hmm. It's very weird. Even here in the Philippines, everybody calls me Mike Stone. It's as if Mike Stone is one name. Very strange. So Priscilla called me that, and then the evening was over. And everybody was milling around and talking and everything, but everybody was slowly leaving the, the arena floor. This is the Long Beach Arena. And I was talking now to Dick Dale and his wife. And at the time, he was married to a Filipino girl who was a, a Tahitian dancer at one of the Polynesian reviews in Orange County, California. So uh, we were talking, and uh, we are talking about their lions because he lived in Orange County, a place that he had a permit because most people had lots over a quarter a quarter of an acre and if you did he had a permit allowed him to keep a couple lions on his property female lions so we're talking about the lions and everything because he had pictures of the lions in his house jumping on his bed and everything so we're talking about that then all of a sudden priscilla just walked in the middle of our conversation and just goes hi what are you guys talking about and, we, and then uh, Dick said, oh, we're just talking about the lions I have. She says, oh, yeah, that's fascinating, like that. And then, so she kept looking at me to say something. And I wouldn't, and then I would just keep talking to, to Dick. Then finally, uh, Jerry Schilling came over with uh, Joanne uh, Esposito. Yeah. And, and, and uh, Jerry said, Silla, we have to go now. It's getting late. We have to get back to the house. So she says, ah, okay, okay, uh, I'm going. So they started to walk away, and then she was saying goodnight to uh, Dick Dale. But she didn't say goodnight to me. So she just turned, and I said to her, I said, goodnight, nice to meet you. Now, this really must have been the third or fourth time we've met. 
And she walked away, and she walked all the way to the folding doors entrance to the arena, which was now about maybe 35, 40 yards away from where we were standing. And I was still talking with Dick and his wife. And she stopped, and she was now with Joanne and Jerry Schilling. And she stopped and turned, and there were still quite a few people in the arena. And she said, good night, Mr. Stone. <laughs> so and then she said, good night, Mr. Stone. I said, night, nice to meet you. And then when she left, I said to Dick, I said, man, she's a weird chick, huh? <laughs> Um, I always feel that when somebody uses uh, somebody's full name, it's almost like a mark of respect. I mean, if somebody was to say to me, well, now, hello there, Steve Francis, you know, it's almost like they're showing a great deal of respect to you. Yes. And I, I think the reason I have always experienced this in my life was because when I started kindergarten, I was a year older because when we transferred to Maui, when I was five, we couldn't get into the school in time. So we had to wait another year. So I was already a year older in the kindergarten. Then in the fourth grade, I was such a disruptive student, I was failed. I flunked the fourth grade and had to repeat it. So the new kid that came into class, the third graders that now came to the fourth grade, which I stayed in for another year, they already looked up to me because I was a year older than all of them. But by now I was two years older than the kids in that particular class. So everybody, especially the women, the girls always called me Mike Stone, even at that age. Mm -hmm. In high school, exactly the same. And again, here, it, it's very strange, the energy I must emit for people to call me that. I'm talking about three, four-year-olds here in the Philippines that can hardly speak English, and the only English words they've ever said is my name. And yet they always put it together like, oh, Sir Mike Stone. Yes. It's weird. Very, very, yeah. very, very, very interesting. Um, can we uh, address the romance with Priscilla? Yes. Okay. All right. If you'd like to tell us about that, what, what, what happened afterwards, <clears throat> after this uh, meeting, and she was saying goodbye, Mike Stone, and all that. Well, how it, how it actually got started was, again, uh, she gave me a call. I, I think it was in the middle of the week. I'm thinking about Wednesday because that's when I had one of my female instructors answered the phone for me, a girl named Katie Seavers. And I was teaching a private lesson in the afternoon, and the phone rang, and Katie Seavers answered the phone, and then held the mouthpiece, leaned into the class, which she's not allowed to do to interrupt the class, and said, Mr. Stone, Priscilla Presley is calling. And I said, who? She said, Priscilla Presley. I said, tell her to call back later. I'm, I'm not finished with my class. So she told Priscilla to call back later because I'm in the middle of a class. <laughs> so she called, she called back later when, you know, she said, no, call back in like 15 minutes, whatever it was. When she called back, this time I answered the phone. I said, hello. She said, hi. I said, hi. And it's almost like she said, hi, expected I should know who she was. So I said, yes, can I help you? She said, yes, Mike Stone? I said, yes. She said, hi, this is Priscilla. I said, hi how can i help you she says oh i'm sorry i interrupted your class and sounded a little sarcastic you know i said no it's it's a policy we have that when i'm in the middle of class we don't you know it can't wait regardless of who's calling so she thought that she was so special that she could interrupt the class i guess i don't know so i said how can i help you she says well i was thinking about coming down to watch one of your classes and i said 
all right. So she says, when do you have them? I said, Monday through Friday. Our last class is from 8 to 9.30. And she says, so I can come down and watch? I said, sure. Uh, and she said, oh, anybody can watch? I said, yes, anybody can watch. So I guess she thought I was making a special thing for her to watch the class. I said, no, every, we actually have a sitting area that is like a bleacher style. There's three step seats up that parents and friends of students can actually watch the class. I have nothing to hide in teaching. So she says, oh, okay, maybe I'll come down and um, uh, I have to bring a friend of mine. I said, all right, fine. So, and so that was it. She says, okay, bye. So I said, bye. And then a couple of nights, I guess it was on the Friday night now, she came down with uh, a girl named Nora that was from Memphis that was staying with her. And apparently Elvis was not in California at that time for her to leave, you know, to go that far. Uh -huh. So Nora drove her down to uh, Golden West Street in uh, Huntington Beach. That's where my second school was. So she came and watched the class. And then after class, we have a normal, especially Friday night after class, we have um, a pizza night. So after we finish the class, uh, everybody had left except for the instructors and myself because I, I normally take the instructors out for pizza on Friday evenings at the end of the week. So she's just waiting around and, you know, waiting for other people to leave because I thought she wanted to ask me some questions. And then she says, oh, the class is very interesting. I might be interested in taking classes. I said, didn't we talk about this once before at Chuck Norris's school about how far it is for you to come down? And she said, yeah, but I, I may have some time. Now, again, she may have said that knowing that Elvis wasn't going to be around for a couple of months, maybe. I don't know. So I said, um, uh, okay, so I'm, I'm kind of like moving toward the door. You know, everybody's already outside and leaving. We're getting ready to lock up, and they put away the equipment and clean, uh, sweep the floor. And she says, oh, where are you guys going? I said, oh, we're just going to go next door for pizza. It's our pizza night. She goes, oh, can we join you? I said, yeah, sure, absolutely. She said, you sure it's all right? I said, yeah, it's fine. So she joined us, and we all went there for, uh, uh, for pizza. And then slowly the instructors started to file out. And then I was left with her and uh, one of my chief instructors, a guy named Howard Hansen, who was the president of the W. KA, World Karate or World Kickboxing Association uh, later on. And so he stayed with me and we were talking and we just talked, it got later and later and it says, my God, you guys have to, it's, it's a far drive back up, you guys have to leave. And she goes, oh no, it's, it's okay. So apparently she was not concerned about having to get home. And then so she did say, okay, it was nice watching the class and you know, is it okay if I call you if I decide to take classes? I said, yeah, sure. So she eventually did. And then uh, the first time, the first couple of times she came down, uh, Nora drove her. I think the second or third time she came down, I was going home. It was not the Friday night pizza thing. I was going home and she said, do you mind if I go home and meet your wife and children? And I was just shocked. I said, what? She said, would it be okay if I meet your, your wife and your daughters? I said, no, it's okay. Do you really have time? She said, yes. Yeah. So I took her to the house and introduced her to Francine, my wife. 
and my two daughters, uh, Shelly and Lori. And one thing led to another. She kept coming down all the time. And, you know, I'm talking about three or four days a week. And she did very good. You know, she was um, an excellent dancer. Uh, she really enjoyed dancing. And uh, I think under Chuck, she was a, a green belt in Tang Sudo. Mm -hmm. uh, but when she came to me, I said, you'd have to start with a white belt. You can't wear a green belt here. And she goes, but Chuck's your friend. I said, yeah, he still is my friend, but you are, you are my student, not Chuck. So you have to wear a white belt like everybody else that starts here. And then the romantic thing happened just over time, you know, just, uh, I'm not going to tell you some things because it's, it's going to be in my book for the first time. Yes. I understand that. I mean, if we, if we cover everything, then, you know, nobody will want to buy the book and read it. I'm sure you have lots and lots more stories to tell. I, I just wanted to uh, say that, uh, Nora, the, the lady you, uh, you referred to a couple of times, she was actually married to Lamar Fike, who was one of Elvis's entourage. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not yeah. familiar with I'm, I'm, I'm almost pretty sure it was it was uh, uh, Lamar's uh, wife. So um, one thing led to another, and um, as we as we know, uh, Elvis and Priscilla separated. Um, yes. I really I really want to give you the opportunity because down through the years, people have said Mike Stone was the bad apple in in the barrel, and he split uh, Elvis and Priscilla up. He was the reason why uh, Priscilla left Elvis. So what's your answer to that? Well, I have several answers. First of all, it's uh, best people do, that never knew probably Priscilla, myself, or Elvis personally. It's fans. It's people that love and respect Elvis, and they felt like they needed to protect him. So all of this I understand. I understand the nature of people. So that doesn't bother me. But what did bother me, again, at that time, it doesn't bother me anymore. What bothered me then was the media took a basic premise that I had stolen Elvis from Priscilla. And uh, I was asked by a friend of mine to attend an event. I think it was in uh, Vancouver, and I did. And when I went up there, he did not tell me that he had made an arrangement with the local TV station for me to plug his event the night before, because it was on the news, but it was a talk show thing a couple days before, and that uh, he had arranged with the producers of that talk show that I would go on to talk about Elvis and Priscilla, my relationship. And nobody ever told me that. So... When I went there, uh, I was in the green room, and the uh, assistant producer, whoever she was, that came in to say, okay, you're up next for the next segment. And uh, so uh, what she's going to ask you, she means the, the hostess, what she's going to ask you is, is it true that you stole uh, Priscilla from Elvis? Mm -hmm. I said, what? She said, Oh, I mean, you know, it's agreed that she would ask you some of these questions. I said, well, who agreed to it? And she says, well, the, the guy that said that it's okay for us to interview you f to promote the event. I said, well, I'm here to promote the event. And she said, well, we can't, we will do that. But, you know, obviously we have a motive for giving you the time on the air to promote the event. 
and that is we want for you to talk about your relationship with Priscilla. And I says, well, then you're not going to have it. I'm going I'm going to leave. So she was in a panic. And the next seg segment was about to start. So she ran out and called the hostess and they made some arrangement where the hostess came back herself and talked to me in the green room and said, oh, Mr. Stone, I understand there's a miscommunication. I said, absolutely there is. Mm -hmm. And she said, but this is the understanding we have. I said, but nobody talks to me about it and I don't have that understanding. So she said, but what's wrong with it? I said, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm, I'm offended by the question. I said, I didn't steal anybody. And she saw I was upset about it. And she said, well, would you like to tell the audience, both the in-studio audience and the people watching your side of the story? And this is what I've been wanting to do ever since we met. And I've never gave an interview. So I said, yeah, if you just ask me that, will you give me five minutes or three minutes or whatever it is for me to explain my side? That's all I want to do. She says, absolutely, you have my word. So the next segment came on and we went on and I have some photographs of this and it's absolutely beautiful, the relationship that we had uh, with the host. So she said, uh, Mike, I have, now I already know what she was going to ask me. Mike, let's just cut to the chase. I have to ask you this question. Is it true that you stole Priscilla from Elvis? And when she said that, she told me what camera to look in. And she said, just go ahead and tell the people out there. So the light was on. But in the back of the camera, there was about 50 people in the studio audience at the time behind the camera. So I was both talking to the audience in, in the TV and the audience behind the camera. And I said, let me ask you all this simple question. How many of you during the course of your life has had a relationship that for whatever reason, not pointing fingers, not blaming, not condemning, not accusing, but for whatever reason, the relationship had run its course. It was over. How many of you have ever had a relationship like that? Now, I'm asking, obviously, the, the, in, the people on camera, and I don't know who's raising their hand, but the in-house studio, a lot of people raised their hand. And I said, it is impossible for anyone to steal another human being. First of all, it's called kidnapping. And why didn't anybody press charges against me for kidnapping Priscilla? I said, that's stupid. That's ludicrous. I said, somebody has to agree to go in advance. That means Priscilla had already decided she was going to leave Elvis. I happened to be the person she chose to use for her to get away from him because she knew my strength and my reputation and Elvis's love for martial arts and Elvis's instructor Ed Parker and he was a very close friend of mine and all of these associations out of all of the people she later tells me that I could be the only one that she felt comfortable leaving Elvis. Okay, you've answered you, you've answered that very well. I mean, I was going to say uh, along the same lines as well. You know, the word steal means to take against uh, permission, really, doesn't it? You have you have no permission to take that person or item or whatever it is. So, in a nutshell, uh, Priscilla left of her own free will. Yes, absolutely. And if you if you have ever looked at her articles and interviews with Barbara Walters in 1985 and a bunch of others. Uh, she has openly stated that she was in a situation, I mean, I think there was one time that she apparently said that 
uh, there was no love making for seven years or something like that before they got married apparently and after the birth of Lisa. So uh, Im imagine a beautiful woman young that has to live under conditions like that. And she always said that, you know, I felt like I was a prisoner in that house. Everything I did was because of Elvis, for Elvis, everything was him. There was nothing, she had no identity whatsoever. So if they went someplace, if they watched a movie, if they ate dinner, if they did everything, it was Elvis's choice and decision, which allowed everybody to conveniently follow and say, yes, well, if Elvis wants that, that's what we're doing. So she lived like that. So can you imagine how difficult it would be for a young, beautiful woman to live under those conditions, regardless of who the man is, she, how, uh, young, how, how famous, how wealthy? It, it seems that she actually struggled with uh, Elvis's lifestyle. Uh, but anybody would. Mm. Anybody would. I tell you the truth, I struggled with her lifestyle when we lived together. It was the worst four years of my life. Not because of her. She was absolutely sensational. She was beautiful. She was caring. She was loving. She has a wonderful personality. She's very warm and outgoing. I, I found nothing wrong with her. The thing I couldn't take was the bullshit of Hollywood. I could not stand phony people. And it was not a good time for me whatsoever. No, Again, like her, no matter who you're in a relationship with how wealthy, how famous, how beautiful, how handsome, how rich, it makes no difference. When you're not happy within your soul, within the essence of who you are as a being, you're not happy. There's nothing externally outside of you that can fill that void. I, I think you and I would get on very well because I, I don't suffer fools gladly either. <laughs> no, I mean, it's listen, life is way too short. Yes, yes. You can't, you can't waste your time with with people that that tear you down that are negative that are disruptive that are jealous envy hatred greed selfishness fear please stop it already so no, no matter who they are if you have to if you have to change your life if you have to find new relationships it takes a lot of courage to do that i give her credit for the courage it took for her to live or leave that lifestyle that comfort that fame, that recognition, not for her, but for her husband, to leave that, it, it, it took some serious thinking, yes. especially when she, she was at an age of 14 where she was highly impressionable, obviously, even for her parents to allow her to move into Graceland. Please give me a break. Um, I, I wanted to ask, um, what, during your time with Priscilla, uh, were you ever concerned for your own personal safety? If I say never, would you believe me? Uh, well, you're a handy fella when it comes to uh, self-defense and so forth, so I would probably believe that you weren't too concerned. No, I was never concerned. Because, as you know, there were there were accusations in uh, certain books that were written just prior to Elvis passing away that accused him of making certain threats. Yes, yes, I'm very, I'm very aware of all of that. But it, I'm it, aware it, of all, I am aware of all the people that were aware of it at the time. I've talked with several of them, including Dave Hebler. Uh, I was never concerned. In fact, I believe someone, uh, when they had written their book called Elvis, What Happened? 
Yes. I think I think in chapter four or something they had mentioned that Elvis must have been crazy if he thought he could ever fight Mike, you know, to fight me man to man. Did uh, Priscilla ever say anything about these threats to you? Yes, of course. We talked about it openly. So you 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 just it was something which you just thought you know i i shouldn't be concerned about this uh, and there there was no there was no more to say no uh, actually there was one time we were living in marina del rey and uh, this was before we had moved up to the house on somerset in uh, beverly hills and uh elvis had called and had wanted to talk with lisa marie uh, Lisa Marie had already gone to sleep. This was about 10 o'clock at night. So Elvis was apparently, I'm not, I, I don't know if I should say this, but he wasn't in his own right mind. He may have been on some medication. I'll put it that way. That's fair enough. Okay. Uh, while talking to Priscilla. And while talking to Priscilla, he knew obviously that I was there, that we were living together. So he made the threat again to Priscilla about what he was going to do to me, that he said he would make me get on my knees and beg for my life in front of her. And so I did not hear this part, but I was watching Priscilla's face and it started to change until she started crying. So I said, Priscilla, what's up? And she says, nothing, it's okay. I said, no, you're still talking to Elvis. And she said, she just nodded her head, yes. So I said, what did he say? She said, nothing, it's okay. I said, what did he say? And she said, oh, you know, he's just angry and upset and he'll get over it, but what did he say? And he said that uh, he'll come over here because he knows where we live and that he will beat me up and put me on my knees and make me beg for my life. So she was holding the mouthpiece at the time and I, I grabbed her hand and moved her hand from the mouthpiece and I said, Elvis, I will never run away from you, ever. Did, did he, did he tr was he still trying to get Priscilla back? Did he want Priscilla back? Because I believe that Elvis moved on. He, 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 uh, he accepted that Priscilla wanted a divorce. But there are people who said that he always loved Priscilla and he was asking for her to come back right to the very day he died. Well, I, I, I really don't know that you would have to ask Priscilla if Priscilla knew that situation. She never, she was nice enough not to say it to me. If you, not that I knew Elvis because I only met him probably on four occasions, but I knew him very well because of Priscilla, because of all the stories she said, but even if she did not, if a man is this good looking, this wealthy, this sought, out, sought out after by everyone, uh, if he has the world at his fingertips and the thing that he prized most was to give the impression that he loved his wife no matter what. And I'm not saying he did not. Even, you know, men are basically, I'm not talking about Elvis, I'm talking about me right now when I say this, men are basically dogs. Okay. They are basically animals. This is the nature of the male. So when I say that, I'm talking about that in relationship to attracting and being with women. So 
he knew how popular and famous he was. So for him to go quietly into the sunset when his wife is going to leave him, not he leave her, he has left every other woman in his life, but she left him. What do you think it did to his ego? What do you think it did to his pride? What do you think it did to his reputation? What do you think it, and in the state that Elvis was at the time, I'm talking about partaking in a lot of medication. I mean, who, who, if you are around him to know that he shoots television sets, he has guns everywhere under the cushions, under pillows in the bathroom, uh, everywhere in, in, in the suite at the International Hotel. And when I walked in, he was giving me a tour of the suite, showing me where all the weapons were. So how secure is a man that he has to show another man, look, I have a gun here, one here, one here, three in the bedroom, one over here, one in the bathroom, in the living room, in the plaza, in the kitchen. So do you understand what I'm saying, Steve? Yeah, I, I, I've got a better understanding now. I, I think you've actually addressed the, the points I was trying to, to get at, uh, why he said those things to Priscilla, why he acted the way he did uh, prior to the divorce and so forth. Yes, I understand, and I understand it. I mean, I, I never thought he did anything wrong. He was simply being a man, and the man that he was, this is the way he chose to express himself and how he wanted to vent his anger and frustration, disappointment, jealousy, whatever it was. I mean, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist. I have a hard time dealing with my own thoughts. Your relationship with Priscilla sort of run its course, as, as, you yes. have as you have mentioned previously. That's what relationships sometimes do. Yes. And uh, was it for you? I think you said four years. Uh, yes, because from the time that she started, we hardly started to have a relation from the time that she came down to take karate lessons with me. Oh, yes. So this, this was over a year and a half before anybody in Hollywood knew where she was going on weekends. We actually had an apartment in uh, Naples, in, in uh, Long Beach, long before anybody knew. The only people that knew that never said a word were my, my students and my karate instructors. That's how long we were already dating before anybody had any suspicion. Okay, so uh, and all this is going to be covered in the upcoming book that you're working on. Yes. And uh, you, 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 I, think you, I think you've outlined that you're going to kind of break it down into three, maybe four sections. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, and the first section is going to, well, you can tell me actually, what is the first section going to cover? The first section deals with my childhood. I kind of broke everything down into 10-year segments. Uh, so just for writing so that it's easier to put everything in chronological order and write everything as, as they were happening as I remembered it. So I did thing in, in uh, uh, 10 year increments. Uh, that's my early life. Then when I went into the military, that started my karate career. So from about 19 years old, uh, for the next 20 years or so was my involvement in martial arts, uh, tournaments, competition, promotion, uh, schools, uh, all uh, the, the ninja movies, all of those activities that dealt with my martial arts skills and abilities. 
during that time also, I had met quite a few celebrities that I had worked with from time to time in different capacities. So another section of the book is going to be about my relationships with celebrities. I have a relationship with Engelbert Humperdinck that has been absolutely amazing. We are still very close friends. We at least uh, communicate through email once a week. I still help him with his dieting and fasting, juice fasting, and things like that. Uh, whenever he has concerts here in, in Asia, in the Philippines, in Singapore, in uh, Thailand, Malaysia, Hong Kong, uh, in Australia, I always go and travel and uh, be with him when he's here in Asia. So we have a, a tremendous relationship that started many years ago. Uh, that's another part of the book. A part that I, I am deciding to leave out of the autobiography has to do with the program I have been working on for the last 25 years that I've been living here in the Philippines. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's called the Life-Changing Experience. And it's a program that has evolved throughout my life from from the time of my mother's death, when I was 11 years old, I went through a, a terrible change in my life. I had a terrible downward spiral. I became uh, very mean, very aggressive, very cruel, um, very angry, very resentful toward authority, especially teachers. Uh, yet coaches in my life has been my saving grace. Whenever I participated in sports, from coaches I received tremendous amount of encouragement, positive attitude, never quit, never give up, all the positive things. But because I disrupted the classes so much as a student, I caused hell in the elementary school and even with authorities. So at one point I could have probably been taken away to juvenile detention, but one of the police that are good friends with my dad talked my dad into enrolling me into a boxing program when I was in the sixth grade and the boxing program was coached and taught by prisoners from Olinda prison. These were hardcore people. And this is why I started to understand about discipline, honor and respect because they beat the shit out of me all the time. And these are, these are people in prison and I'm only what, maybe 14, 15 years old. And they had no qualms about jabbing you full on right in the face or punching you to the body and dropping you to your knees. So it was all of this and all of, all of my life's terrible, terrible decisions and choices I've made is what I cover. And I'm going to weave that like a parallel track in my life. That at the same time, I was choosing a lot of negativity anger, resentment, hatred. At the same time, I had some people that always believed in me as I was growing up through sports. And if it wasn't for sports, the cliche goes, I would be dead or in prison. And that is not a lie. So um, I have a lot to be grateful for. And when I left America to come here to the Philippines, because I was making some movies in the early 80s here in the Philippines, I made several of them the, with the Canon Films, um, I found a paradise here, uh, the home that I'm still living in, the place that I've lived for 35 years. 
Uh, it has tremendous energy here. It's a vortex of very positive energy, and it's been very good for me. And I created a program called the Life Changing Experience, and primarily what it is is all the negative things I've learned, looking at the positive side of it and, and changing my life completely, completely, and using my life experiences as the focal point of the program that I've been doing. And since then, I've had people that come to me from all over the world, from England, Germany, France, Italy, Australia, uh, America, uh, that come here to do this program. And it's not, it's not a cakewalk. I mean, you come here, you do either 7, 14, 21, or 30 days. The ones that, many of the people that have taken the seven days have come on to do 14 or 21 after. Uh, but you're not allowed to eat. You're not allowed to leave the property. There's no smoking, no drugs, no sex, nothing. You stay here. You do meditation. You do martial arts training, full bore. You only drink vegetable juices, fresh. Uh, one guy uh, that is a very good friend that still, he contacted me today because it's his anniversary with his wife. They're in Australia now, but they're from uh, Hong Kong. She is. Uh, he lost... 33 pounds in 21 days and five and a half inches off his waistline. Wow. Still exercising to the max. I mean, I I have, quote unquote, no mercy when it comes to discipline. I am truly hardcore. If people want to make changes in their life, it's going to take courage. And if you could or if you did have the courage, you would have already made the changes you preferred to live, but you haven't. So it takes someone like me, and not only do I tell you what to do, there is nothing I ask you to do that I do not and will not do at the time I'm teaching you. So I do the fasting, the juicing, the exercise. I do everything with every client that come here, and every client does it only one-on-one, -on -one, private lessons. I don't want to talk to other people about your life, and I'm sure you don't want to share it with someone else. It's, but it, they it, make. It, yes, it, go ahead. It, it, it sounds tough, but as you say, you 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 uh, follow them and do it along with them. So it, it's it's tough but fair by the sounds of it. Yes, and and again, every every example I use of the negativity that they are also experiencing in their life, I have also been through. So it's nothing new. There's nothing that I'm telling them that I haven't experienced. In fact, I use my life as examples in storytelling about each one of the things that they are confronted with, I say, well, don't feel bad. I did exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. So we are not different. And this is the thing I want people to understand that I got so much credit for being such a natural athlete, gifted and everything. That's nonsense. I was no better than anyone else ever. I just had a different way of thinking, a belief system that allowed me to be the best I could be. I never competed against anybody. I never had opponents or competition. I never believed in that. I was my greatest composite, uh, opponent and competition, not the guy standing in front of me. He didn't matter. That's why I walked over everybody so effortlessly. Why? It didn't mean anything. I didn't give them an identity. They were just somebody they put in front of me to kick his ass for three minutes. Mm. You, you, you do a motivational speaking as well, don't you? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, and uh, I, I was going to say, uh, the other sections of the book is obviously going to include your relationships with probably Phil Spector 
obviously Priscilla and Elvis, Engelbert you've mentioned, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer and Bruce Lee. We mentioned Bruce Lee at the beginning of the interview. Uh, what yes. about what, what about uh, Michelle Pfeiffer? Just touch a little bit well, on Michelle, that. Yeah, Michelle Pfeiffer was sent to me by a guy named uh, Spielberg or Spielman. Spielman? Uh, you know, the older guy that does a lot of TV series before? Anyway, he was he was uh, going to produce a, a pilot series called, I think it was Cats, K-A-T-Z or K-A-T-S. And it was uh, two guys and a girl that were like undercover agents. And Michelle Pfeiffer was who they were looking at as a female, but she had no martial arts experience. So they sent her to me for several months to do martial arts training. And then we ended up having a romantic situation for a while. Uh, when she was on the Johnny Carson show for the first time, I went with her on that particular evening. And Johnny Carson just fell in love with her. <laughs> I mean, she was, she is such a natural. She's so beautiful. Um, you, you know, it's, it's, it's sad that, that a lot of people, of course, you can't be having affairs and relationships with everybody you meet, but it's sad that people like Priscilla and like Michelle that are, that are gifted, that are truly beautiful people inside, that they are so easily misunderstood and misrepresented because of their beauty and their, their position in life and not taken at face value. I think this was one of the major reasons that, that Priscilla wanted to leave. She wanted her own identity. She wanted to see if she could make it on her own, uh, succeed or fail, that she would be responsible for the outcome of her life. So, uh, and Michelle, my goodness, what a what a gifted actress, unbelievable. So yes, I'll talk about. And listen, there is. I'm not doing it to be nice or trying to be nice or afraid what anybody. There is nothing I could ever say bad about the people I had relationships with, except Phil Spector, and I will tell the truth about that. I'm really looking forward to this book. I must admit. Uh, have you any idea when it'll be ready for publication? No, I don't even have a publisher. I'm just writing it. Again, I've been writing it off and on for 25 years now, just making notes about different aspects of my life and different situations. So now I'm digging out all the notes from all the files I've had over the years, and I'm now putting it together. I'm, I'm putting it into different categories, primarily right now by years, you know, the first 10 years, the next 10 years, yes. like that. I'm breaking it down so it's easy for me to not get overwhelmed with the entire process. And probably no title yet either. If you, <laughs> That's probably the last thing on your mind. Uh, the title? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I had an idea for it. Uh, I was thinking of nothing but the truth. Oh, yeah. That's snappy and to the point anyway. Nothing but the truth. Yeah, yeah. That would work. <laughs> well, I, I don't know whether it will or not. But <laughs> that's one. I, but that's that's one of the ones I am leaning toward. Mike, I've had such a great time talking to you over the last hour, hour and a half. I've really enjoyed it. I must admit, and I, I just I'm glad that uh, you uh, agreed to the interview, and you know it would give you the opportunity just to set the record straight. Yes, I appreciate it, Steve. Thank you so much. Mike, where can our listeners contact you? I can be contacted at mswarrior1, the number one, at yahoo.com. And I'm going to say I would love to have you back on when the book is published so we can discuss it again, really. Yes, I'll be, I'll be more than happy to do that. 
Mike, th- thanks for your time and keep well. Thank you. You too. Be safe. A very big thanks once again to Mike for joining me on the show today. I'm sure you'll agree with me. It was a fascinating interview. You can contact me by email at ElvisTheUltimateFanChannel at gmail.com and on Facebook and Twitter at ElvisTheUltimateFanChannel. All my podcasts are available on all good podcast providers such as Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Google Podcasts, Stitcher and iHeartRadio to name just a few. Thanks for listening and I hope you'll join me next time for another episode from Elvis the Ultimate Fan Channel podcast. Mm-hmm.